Ephesians chapter three, verse 14. Paul prays, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And grab your seats. We'll pray. Before we pray this morning, I thought I might invite you to do something with me if you're capable, if you want to. If you're not comfortable, that's fine. But Paul does something interesting here before he prays. He actually kneels before the Father. So if you feel so inclined and you feel like your knees can take it, I'm going to kneel up front and pray over our sermon this morning. And if you want to pray with me here in the church, be bold, do it, get on your knees, and let's pray together. Father, as we take up this position, the hard floor under our knees, awkward and uncomfortable, we're reminded as we submit to you in bowing that you were made ultimately uncomfortable. You endured the greatest pain for us. Remind us, Lord, this morning of the infinite oceans of your love. Lord, we bow that you might come and meet with us. We surrender, Lord, to your will. We submit to you as our God and as our King. And I know, Lord, this morning that many come in and they long to know that they are loved. They long to know that they are accepted. Here this morning, I cannot persuade them. Only you, Lord, by the work of the Holy Spirit through prayer can teach your people and speak to your people. And so as a body... We bow before you in submission. We bow in honor and in reverence of you. And you're our Father. And so, Lord God, today, might we hear very clearly from you and be transformed, encouraged, and buoyed up above all the chaos of our lives. Here on this Sunday morning, Lord, let it not be wasted. May this sermon speak by the power of the Holy Spirit into the hearts and minds and souls of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Grab your seats. Google is a fascinating technology. We can learn a lot about what culture, what we as a human society are wondering about, looking for, and longing for by studying what we search in Google. 
In 2012, the top most Googled query, that is the question that people asked of Google the most in the year 2012 was, what is love? It seems pretty obvious to me that our culture is a tad bit confused about what love is. We've co-opted the word to describe our desire and pleasure in tasting chocolate cake, (laughs) while at the same time associating it with the affection we have for our grandmother, while simultaneously using the word to describe the passion and fire that we feel towards the person that we want to be with intimately. And so our culture uses love ubiquitously. I love chocolate cake. I love my grandma. I love my girlfriend. I love the Seahawks. And so we're a tad bit confused about what love really is, and so we use Google to query, to question, what is love? I want to know what love actually is. Now, the ancient Greeks, they were a tad bit more sophisticated than we moderns are, as prideful and as arrogant as we are. The ancients actually knew quite a bit, and they described six different types of affection and desire and emotion as love. They had categories of love. I've listed them for you here just by way of introduction. Philosia was what the Greeks described as self-love, uh, and that should say narcissism, not narcississy. <laughs> <laughs> the Greeks actually held to two forms of self-love, one of them good, There was a self-awareness and a self-consciousness and a self-preparedness that they considered actually very valuable, but then there was the the nasty, naughty kind of self-love, which was narcissism, or narcissism, as it's properly said. Eros was the sexual lust and the passion that we feel, that burn that we feel in our hearts. And interestingly enough, the Greeks would say that eros was dangerous. In fact, eros was to be controlled, if not denied, Flip the coin 2,000 years later, and American society says eros is what love is. Burning, it's what what I feel, It's, it's what I want, it's my passion. That's what real love is. While the Greeks said, no, dangerous, be careful. Ludus or lupus, ludus, uh, it looks like it autocorrected. I obviously didn't go through and check these slides. (laughs) We're super professional at this church, just get used to it. Very, very technical around here. Not lupus, ludus. Gosh, this is going south already so fast. Just stay with me on this, ludus. Ludus is the flirtatious, playful love that the Greeks described. It, it takes place amongst tweeners and teenagers and people that read Twilight books. That's what, that's what ludus is. <laughs> philia or philia. Now we're getting to some words that you might be familiar with, all you Greek scholars in here. Philia is the deep friendship, and so this carried the idea of of soldiers that had been to war together, and they had developed this deep commitment to one another, this deep loyalty and trust in one another, philia. Then there was pragma. This is one of my favorites. Pragma was what the Greeks considered the long-lasting, has been tested and proven love of, uh, of a marriage, let's say, that just celebrated their 50 years. The love that that couple has for each other was pragma. And then there's the common word, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, that the Greeks considered selfless love, the love that looks to others 
and seeks the one that they love, seeks the beloved's highest flourishing. The word was agape, agape. And so the New Testament, and Jesus in particular, picked up on this word agape, and we see it all throughout the New Testament, and its synonyms. We see uh, philia and uh, storge, which is another word that I didn't develop here in our introduction, but those words became synonymous in the New Testament with Jesus' words, with the words of God as descriptions of how God loves us. How God seeks our highest flourishing at the cost of himself. In fact, Jesus described the greatest love that one can experience and give by saying, there is, great, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's own friends. And so Jesus of Nazareth, this great teacher, this perfect human being, this God in the flesh amongst us, said the greatest love isn't philosophia or eros or ludosophilia or pragma or even agape. It is, it, is, it is to lay down one's life at ultimate cost to oneself for the sake of the one that is being loved. Now, before we get to our prayer here this morning, understand that what makes you and I uniquely human is our capacity to be loved and to love. My fish, Sylvie, has no capacity to receive love from me. And he has no capacity to love me back. And though we may impart and we may project onto our animals, I know we think that our dogs have emotions and they're responding to us in love and guilt and shame, they're actually just responding to our facial expressions. And I can point you to multiple studies that prove my point. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Humans are uniquely able to receive love, and humans are uniquely human in all of God's creation because they are able to give love. This idea that we are able to seek the highest flourishing of the beloved at cost to, to ourselves. And we cannot be fully human if we're not loved. We cannot be what we were always intended to be if we can't be loved and if we can't love. I'm sure you've heard of the multiple studies that were done of babies that were born into orphanages and they were never held, never cuddled, never brought close to experience physical, tangible love. Some of them died. We cannot be what we are to truly be. We can't grow, we can't mature, we can't be healthy if we don't experience love and whether we want to or not, whether we believe this or not, there may be some stoic soul sitting in here this morning, self-deceived saying, I don't need to love anybody. I'm my own man. The truth is you do love something. You and I are hardwired with an undeniable capacity and drive to love something. And so we will give ourselves to something or someone, no matter how much we may say we are self-sustained and stoic of heart. We are human, made in God's image, who is the ultimate act of love. 
God is an everlasting community of love. The unique teaching of the Bible in revelation of who our God is, is that he is triune. He is three persons but one essence. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. Our God is an everlasting community. And so when he created humanity in his image, he gave to us that innate, undeniable capacity to be loved and to give love. So that brings us to our prayer this morning. Last week, we looked into Paul's prayer, and I asked you, what do you think your greatest need is this morning? And to our minds comes, well, I need money. Well, I need this circumstance fixed. Well, I need this relationship to go a different way. Well, I need my emotional dispositions to be transformed. But in truth, when Paul prays, the first thing he prays for God's people as their greatest need is to know God. So we spent time last week looking at how prayer is the fundamental foundation. It's the base principle. It is the pathway to knowing God. Our ultimate need is to know God. And then this morning we see that Paul's next prayer for the Ephesian church, after he prays that we would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the inside of him, that we would know the hope to which we've been called, that we would know the glorious riches and the inheritance of the saints, the immeasurable power towards us, he now prays God Help them, strengthen them to know how much you love them. And what I find so, I guess, important in this prayer is Paul doesn't pray, God, help them to love you more. Paul prays specifically, help the church, Holy Spirit, strengthen them in the inner man to comprehend with all the saints what is this height and width and depth and length of this incomprehensible love that you have for us. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to basically give five answers to this key question because it's what you and I are all longing for this morning. This is how we mature. This is how we become truly human. This is how we come to know who we truly are and experience his purposes and find joy and peace and contentment. Everything that all of us are longing for, would you like to know the answers to that question? The question being, how can I experience his love? When we ask that question, how can I know and experience in my heart God's love, we're actually answering. The answers to that question bring about the peace and the contentment and the joy and the sense of purpose and identity that we're all longing for. Five answers to that basic question this morning from Paul's prayer. How can I experience God's love? Point number one this morning, answer number one. Notice there in verses 14 through 15. I didn't just have you bow for some sort of kind of novel experience in church. I think that we worship first with the body. And what we see here is to experience God's love, we must first pray with an absolute surrendered humility. Did anybody have that sense of humiliation? <laughs> Wait, I'm going to have to get on my knees. It's going to be awkward. It's going to hurt. In the midst of the prayer, I'm trying to pray with Pastor Danny and trying to think these eloquent thoughts towards God, but all that's rushing through my head is, is my knees hurt, man. Come on, finish this prayer. <laughs> but you see, there's something that humiliates us in the best sense of humiliation. It humbles us to bow our body, lead with the body in worship, bowing before God. And what Paul does here in verses 14 and 15, he says, for this reason, and the reason that he's alluding to is the sovereignty of God and the massive plan of God that's unfolding in the world as Paul speaks and preaches and brings the gospel to bear in culture. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees. And understand, for the ancient Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew would stand to pray. 
The ancient Hebrew, especially the Pharisaic type of Hebrew, would stand with eyes lifted to God in heaven and pray. But here, Paul, with humility and surrender, in the name of praying for the experience of God's love, says, I'm bowing before you in reverence. I'm bowing before you in honor. He bows before not only a master, not only an all-powerful creator, but Paul here prays and bows to his father. That imagery of the man who is supposed to take care of us, provide for us, give himself for our highest flourishing. That's who Paul is bowing down to. But not only the father, he bows to the father from whom all the families in heaven and earth receive their name. Important here. Names meant a lot in this culture. What was in a name? Their identity was wrapped up in their name. Their purpose, their life trajectory was wrapped up in the names that they were given. And so what Paul is saying here is he is bowing the knee humbly before Father God who gives to everything in creation, in heaven and on earth, its essence, its meaning, its purpose, its being, its reason, its name. So we want to experience this love. We need to search our hearts in prayer, in personal, private prayer, asking the Holy Spirit, am I bowed down to you? Am I bowed to you as my Father? Am I bowed down in surrendered humility to your will for my life? Am I honoring you and respecting you and revering you and humbling myself before you thinking not much of myself, but thinking much of you. We need to bow before the Lord, and we need to allow the Spirit to search our hearts if we're to experience the God of love by asking, Lord, am I letting you name me? A lot of our prayers are, Lord, here's who I want to be. Here's what I want to happen in Jesus' name. And in essence, we're trying to build a name for ourselves and tagging Jesus' name onto the end of our prayers. But our prayer should start with, I'm bowed before you, who am I? You've named me. What is my essence, God? Show me. Who are you making me? What is my purpose? Are you allowing God to name you? And I would encourage you and counsel you that much of the conflict that you feel, the rub that you experience in life is because you're seeking to build a name for yourself rather than allowing God to simply name you. And finally here, before we move on, bowing in humility before God means that we do a thorough search for sin. In a church like ours, we talk about the gospel of grace every Sunday. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. God loves you no matter what you do. But I'm here to tell you that we can grieve God, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, and if we have unchecked sin that we're still standing before God saying, I'm gonna continue in my sin, I'm going to continue to do as I will. I'm going to continue to create a name for myself. The Spirit will still love us, but that sense of love, that sense of experience, that sense of being held close will depart from us as an act of mercy from God, trying to quicken and awaken us and draw us to repentance that he could flood us through as clean conduits through which his Spirit can flow. How can I know and experience God's love Humbly pray, submit to him, allow him to name you, search your heart for sin, confess it, and repent. Number two this morning, second answer from Paul's prayer, 
we see that we actually need to ask God for his strengthening power in our inner man, deep within our souls, in that mysterious place that only we and God know of. This is the same word, that word power there, that word strengthening that Paul prays in verses 16 through 17, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. It's the same word that we talked about last week, dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. We're to ask God to strengthen us with his dynamite power deep down within our souls in the inner man. Out of the riches of who God is, just think of his infinite power, his infinite wisdom, his infinite goodness, his infinite ability. Out of that, we're to come to him and say, I need you to strengthen me with power, with this dynamite power that you have. Why? so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. Let me spend just a little bit of time on this. Christ dwelling in us, Jesus living in our hearts. What does that mean? That's weird, isn't it? I like to take you guys back to who I was 20 years ago before I became a Christian. That was the weirdest thing I'd ever heard. Jesus is going to live in my heart? What are you talking about? That is so strange. What the Bible is saying is when the Spirit comes to indwell a human soul, Jesus takes up residence there. Another way of shorthanding that is saying that God is making you like Jesus. Who was Jesus? Jesus was the one and only ever perfect human being. And so when Jesus comes to dwell in you, his perfections are seen in you by the Father. And so experiencing one facet, now key in on this point, very important. One facet of experiencing God's love for us is actually experiencing the Father's love for Jesus in us. Does that make sense? Perfect human being, Jesus, is in us. And as the Father loves the Son, when we pray, God, strengthen me to experience your love, we're actually praying, I need Christ to so dwell in me, to so permeate my being, my thoughts, my motivations, my reasons, my actions, that I actually experience the favor, the delight, the honor, the adoration, the love that the Father has for the Son in me. Here's how Jesus put it in John 15, 9, a number of years ago. I was cruising through John 15. I probably read it a million times. And John 15, 9 took me to the floor in tears. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. It was as if in a moment, this eternal love that the Father has had for the Son, everlasting, unconditional, your perfect Jesus, that love, Jesus then says, that's the way I love you. And you need to be strengthened with God's Spirit to actually know that and experience that. John 16, Jesus says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And then his final prayer in John 17 before he was crucified and ascended, he was praying for us. And in that place he says, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Now we got to ask the question, why do we need to be strengthened? The only imagery I could come up with in this to try to describe this in it, and it falls desperately short, is the likening of Christ indwelling you 
the likening of God's holy perfections and wisdom and power and joy and glory is likened to taking a torn, old, ratty, moldy paper bag, walking up to the coast of the Pacific Ocean, dipping the bag in the Pacific Ocean and saying, Pacific Ocean, dwell in this torn up, ratty, moldy bag. Why? Our souls, because of sin, our capacity to hold love, our capacity to be loved is broken. That's what sin has done to us. Sin has torn us and molded us. So we're like, our souls are like brown, ratty paper bags held into the Pacific Ocean. And if God does not come and strengthen us, that is, transform us, rather than being the ratty old torn bags, but instead puts in us God himself, the Pacific Ocean itself is put into us. Our souls aren't burst asunder and torn apart. Rather, we become these overflowing conduits of the Pacific Ocean of God's love and blessing and grace and wisdom and perfections. And if you want to experience that, pray for that. People have told me that we're kind of a, we could be, we could tend towards being a cerebral church. We like theology at this church. I'm a theological neatnik and a complete nerd. The elders of this church love theology. Our theological training courses are robust. We talk about big ideas and big concepts and big philosophies and big theologies in this church. But at the exact same time, we are to be praying, Lord, get me out of my head and let me have in my heart the overflowing Pacific Ocean of your love for me. I want to experience that, and I need you to strengthen me because I'm like a torn-up, tattered bag. I need Christ to be the capacity for me to experience this love. It's mysterious. It's inexplicable. I wish I could sit up here and give you five ways to experience this love when you bow in prayer. It's this mysterious reality that God's calling you to. And I want to say one more thing before we move on from this point. You can have all the theology in your head and none of Christ in your heart and be just as hellbound as the next pagan. And I am so concerned for the Western church. Our theological gluttony has made us fat, dumb, and happy with out Christ in our hearts. We can spit big words and listen to Bible studies and podcasts and take our classes and read our big thick books and never have that heartfelt, warm, and real, vibrant experience of God's love in us. Pray for that. If that checks your heart, that's God the Holy Spirit saying, I'm inviting you into this relationship. Pursue that, as we'll talk about here in a moment. Number three, third answer to the question, how can I experience God's love? Prayerfully ground and root your life in his love. Notice what Paul says there in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So we are to, when we pray, pray, Father, I want to be rooted and grounded in your love with your strength as I humbly bow before you. Think of your life like a vine. And the vine has to draw nutrients from somewhere. Where? The ground. The roots of the vine go down into the ground, and from the ground in which the vine is planted, it draws its nutrients so that it can grow and produce grapes and mature and be fruitful. The question is, 
which ground are we rooted in and drawing our nutrients from? To find out where your roots are, to find out where you're really drawing your source of strength from, to find out where you're really grounded, you've got to ask yourself why you do what you do. That's a real revelator on where we're grounded at. So for example, if we're in the soil of fearing man, which is most of us in this room, I just want to make sure that whoever's around me likes me, doesn't reject me. I want them to think I'm cool. I want them to think I'm wise. I want them to think I'm smart. I have this fear of man. That's a soil that we plant our lives in. And we go down in and we draw our nutrients from it. And what happens there, because the soil is bad, sometimes it's over-fertilized. People are praising us. Oh, my life is amazing. I'm so fruitful. I'm so good. I'm so content. And at other times, because the soil can become bad, there's nothing in it. We're rejected. And fearing man brings us to this place of despondency. Oh, I've been rejected. They don't think I'm cool. They don't think I'm smart. They don't think I'm wise. And our lives are up and down and unhealthy because our root is planted in this soil of fearing man or seeking significance or material gain. Think with me about the question, why do I do what I do? And that will reveal to you the soil bed in which you have rooted your life. But Paul says, in Christ, as you're strengthened and bowing down humbly, you're now rooted in God's love. And the Greek syntax here is really interesting. You are, period. You're rooted there. And so we may try to kind of dip a root out into fear of man, need for significance, material gain, but the reality is, as Christians, he has rooted us and grounded us in that love, and we're to increase drawing our nutrients from that place. And you know that your life and your roots are going deep down in God's love because that's where you begin to be transformed. That's where when society praises you and your circle of peers applaud you, you find yourself saying, wonderful, love you guys too. And when society rejects you and Facebooks about you and sends you nasty emails, it's wonderful, I love you too. <laughs> you see, rooting yourself in God's love and de-rooting yourself by repentance of these false soils, it gives you confidence but not arrogance. It gives you humility and ability to love other people. It means that your losses aren't devastating and your gains aren't life-changing. You're more steady. You're more stable. And to the degree that you're rooted and grounded in the fact that God loves you, no matter where you're at, no matter what you're doing, will be the degree that you experience that contentment, that wisdom, that humility, that Jesus in you, that perfect humanity, you becoming really you. But it's all in this concept and in this context of love. One of the questions that is helpful for me to discern where I'm rooting my life and grounding my life in any given circumstance is if the situation is causing pain. I know I'm rooting my life in something that isn't God's love when my first question is, when are you going to fix this? <laughs> How many of our prayers just begin with, oh God, fix it now. <laughs> but rooting ourselves and grounding ourselves in God's love, we do pray, Lord, fix this thing. It's dirty. It's nasty. I don't like it. It hurts. But the first prayer that we pray as we're rooting and grounding ourselves in God's love is, Lord, how will this take me so deep into your presence? Take me there. That's where we bow again, remember? 
Lord, this painful, horrible thing that's happening to me, how is it going to make me like Jesus? How can I respond and have Jesus well up in me and do to these people what Jesus did for me? So rather than a when question, the rooted and grounded life asks, how are you deepening me? What are you allowing into my life that I might know the oceans of your love, which we move on to now? We're to pray, number four this morning, fourth answer to our question, how do we experience God's love? One, bow down and surrender in humility. Pray for strengthening power. Prayerfully ground and root your life in his love. You gotta pray to comprehend the dimensions, the dimensions of God's love for you this morning. Now, this word comprehend here that Paul uses in verse 18 He prays that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints is a super awesome word because it carries the idea of an intentional, with effort, going after a goal until you get it, reality. This word comprehend, Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus, and he's saying to us this morning that when we pray to experience God's love, it's not a quick, give it to me now, in Jesus' name, amen, through the drive-through, high-speed internet thing. It's a consistent, continual, unceasing asking God, open my heart to comprehend. I want to go for this until the day I die. This comprehension facet of prayer means that we are a committed people who are saying, I'm going to meditate daily on God's love. I'm going to go after God's love in my head until it gets into my heart more deeply daily, and I'm going to use my circumstances. Every time I start saying, God, when are you going to fix it? I'm going to turn my circumstances and say, God, I want to experience your love in this. Open my heart. I think for most of us, if you're anything like me, every time I read this prayer for about the next three days, I'm like, God, please strengthen me to comprehend, and then, and then it's like crickets, man, in my soul, <laughs> spitting dust, there's no, there's no lusciousness, there's no love, there's no warmth, there's no, there's no butterflies, there's nothing, man. So after three days, I'm like, bah, it ain't working, I'm out. <laughs> what if, what if what God is saying is pound on the door of the heavens with your prayer to experience my love until the day you die? And what if that is the very means by which that experience comes, sometimes in great measure, Sometimes it seems to lack, but we have that daily commitment of, I want strength to comprehend God's love. When I started thinking of this series a number of years ago, and approaching it actually over these past weeks, I began praying Ephesians 1 over us as a church every day. So over the last probably, you know, three weeks to a month, maybe a month and a half, almost on a daily basis, Lord grant to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. I don't know. I don't know if it's working. Paul is saying it doesn't matter. My prayers there are going to be consistently seeking comprehension of him and an experience of him. And so if you want to experience him, I, I would challenge you. Why don't you just for the, through, through the rest of this year, we've got less than two months till 2115 is in the grave, 2116 is upon us. Rather than a New Year's resolution, just say approaching January, January 1, I'm going to try to pray every day. Put, put some sticky note on your mirror. Put some, some place of a reminder just to pray every day. Lord, strengthen me to comprehend the dimensions of your love today. Put it somewhere where you're going to see it every day. I think the other thing we do too 
is we expect that when we pray that, it's going to be like a hallelujah angel chorus around us. We're going to have this sense of buoyancy, but the reality is our two-year-old will have just crapped in his diaper. It's going to smell terrible, tugging on our, tugging on our pant leg. The job, the boss is going to be calling us on the phone, and we're going to see that little sticky sign, and we're going to, I don't feel holy right now. I don't feel like I can pray to experience God's love. That is the place with the poopy diaper and the boss calling you and the irritated spouse and dinner burning in the oven. God, help me to comprehend your love. <laughs> Guys, that's real Christianity. That's real Christianity. That's where we all live. But that's where Jesus' love is. It's in the midst of that. One time a day. Lord, help me to comprehend this. Now, why do we need this strength again? There are multiple forces always seeking to drag this love and its dimensions down to diminish the dimensions of God's love in our experience. Those forces are, of course, our suffering and society and Satan and sin. So if you're suffering, you can find yourself saying, God, this suffering is not from a loving God. And it's in that moment that you've got to begin praying, Lord, help me to know how deep your love is. How deep does your love go in the midst of this suffering? Please help me to comprehend that. Society comes and rejects you and hurts you. God, that doesn't feel loving to me at all. And that is when you actually have to pray, Lord, I want to know the dimension of the breadth of your accepting love in my life. So I'm rejected by this person and that person, but I am never to be rejected by you. Help me to see the dimensions of how wide that Pacific Ocean is. Satan comes and he lies constantly. If you're anything like me, you wake up every single morning with a wet, soggy blanket over your soul, suffocating you, telling you all of these horrible things. And those are the moments where you have to from 5 in the morning until 10, just pray, Lord, I need to know, I need to know how high your love is. How high above these satanic, abysmal, black hole lies. I need to know it and comprehend it. Strengthen me this morning against Satan's lies in truth. And finally, there's sin in our lives, sin that entangles us. And we need to, rather than fighting it in our own strength, go and pray, Lord, I need to know how long suffering you are with my sin. Help me to comprehend that though I have sinned the same sin for 20 years, I'm bowing before you, I'm searching my heart, I'm repenting. Help me to comprehend how long-suffering you are for me. And then finally this morning as we prepare to go to communion, Paul finishes with this doxology, which is a sermon series in and of itself. It's one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Paul finishes this prayer, and it's, you can just... I love Paul. I can't wait to meet him. I imagine him. He's in his dark candlelit room with his secretary, his, his amuminius writing, and, and he finishes this prayer, and you can just see Paul stand up, and he turns the table over, and he raises up his hands. Now to him! Paul's just like overflowing. The Pacific Ocean has torn the torn and tattered brown bag of his soul apart, and Paul's basking in this Pacific Ocean of love and compassion and grace and mercy, and he's fully human. And what a fully human man does is says, To God be the glory. God is amazing. And that's exactly what Paul does here. To experience God's love, we've got to ask big and then let your imagination run. Ask big and let your imagination run. This is ridiculous what he says. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now on the surface of this prayer, 
We read this prayer, and I know I read this prayer, and there's nothing wrong with reading this doxology this way. We think to ourselves, wow, God can do far beyond what I could ever think or ask or imagine. Lord, I want a million dollars, right? There's nothing wrong with that. God may bring a deeper comprehension of your love by granting you a million dollars. One of the prayers I began praying when I first read this verse, 18 years ago, I literally fell on my face before the Lord and I prayed, Father, I pray that you would use my life to touch every person on this planet, either for judgment or grace, through the gospel of Jesus Christ in this generation and a thousand generations to come. It was as big as I could get. He may or may not do that. What Paul is praying here in context is this. He's praying what is beyond our imagination is the experience of the Pacific Ocean of God's love in us in the midst of the million dollars or in the midst of losing the million dollars. You see, for some of us, we cannot imagine the experience of loss but it may be that very place where God actually meets us. This past week, we're almost done. My family has been in Idaho for 10 days. You guys know me. I'm an introvert. I love being alone. I love being in the quiet. Somewhere around day five, just because I'm a morbid weirdo, I thought to myself, what if my family was gone? <laughs> like, what if something horrible happened? It's one of those 10 o'clock at night, you don't ever want to think that thought things. <laughs> and then for the last five days, I've literally been walking around like, God, I cannot imagine the loss of my family. I can't imagine it. But then I'm reading this guy, Gerald Setzer, who is a professor at, uh, over in Spokane. And in one day, in a car accident, he lost his grandmother, his mother, and his four-year-old daughter in one car accident. And I'm, I'm reading him, and I'm reading his biography, and I'm reading his books on prayer, and, and his amazing books on mysticism and spirituality, and and everything that comes through him years after that accident of an unimaginable loss is it was there where God's unimaginable love he began to comprehend. Now I sit back from it, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't be writing books, I would be bailing out. If that happened to me where I'm at right now in my life and my spirituality and my immaturity, I would bail out. I hope that doesn't make anybody uncomfortable to recognize that we all have these thoughts. But, if it did happen, it's there. The I'm telling you, my imagination. But what the Bible is saying, what Paul is praying here is, you can't even imagine what that would actually be like, and God would meet you there. I think for many of us in this room right now, you've got to quit praying, Lord, when are you going to fix this? He's not going to fix it. You've got to pray, Lord, I want to experience this Pacific Ocean of love and comfort and peace in my heart in the midst of this mess, in the midst of loss, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of all of this, I want to experience your love. So three years ago, our culture is asking on Google, what is love? 2,000 years ago, God sent his son for you to live the life that you couldn't live and to die the death that we all deserve to die and to raise victorious. And then he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us. As we come to communion this morning, and Will, you guys can come on up. That's our meditation. The cross is where we see 
God's love. The cross is where we have the answer to the question, what is love? Love is God's sacrifice to have us. So as we come to communion this morning, we need to be praying for comprehension, for strength. We need to be able to pray with a bowed heart that says, if God gives me an experience of his love this morning, awesome. And if God doesn't give me an experience of his love, as I've defined experience, butterflies, angelic chorus, warm, fuzzy feelings, if God does not give that to me this morning, or if God does not give that to me this week, or for a year, or for some of the saints, and for some of us in personal experience, for years, deserts, begging God, like a deer, I pant for the streams of God's presence. If he doesn't, we're bowed, and we're praying for strength and comprehension. And I'll tell you this, communion meditation this morning reminds us that that torn paper bag, that moldy torn paper bag, is going to be buried. Our bodies. What is outwardly wasting away, inwardly you are being renewed, so that when death comes, the Pacific Ocean will overwhelm you. It will take you. And even the Pacific Ocean has its limits in our understanding because we can see the beach, we can see the perimeters, we can see the edges of where the Pacific Ocean ends. Eternity is going to be ocean upon ocean upon ocean upon ocean upon ocean of love and grace and mercy and joy. God asks us and invites us to pray in the midst of communion. God, I want to comprehend this. And he does it in the midst of the saints us here together, where heaven and earth thin.